Um, this is the, the passage that I will go to every time I'm asked to speak at a church. Um, and if, unless they have something specifically I want me to speak on, this is where I will begin. Um, I, I will not take my time this morning to explain my ministry to you. Um, I, I will say, because you might be wondering right off the bat, so let me just, let me just take care of it for you. Um, pastor said, well, I, I'm an adjunct professor. That's true. So you might be thinking, well, he said he's a missionary, but he's a professor, so does he get paid by the school? Technically, yes. Um, and let me tell you how much money I make. Um, for one class... If I want to, I make enough for one class that I can, should I choose to, eat in the cafeteria every day. <laughs> one meal. I'm not kidding. And uh, for those of you familiar with things like Bible college, the kids where I teach eat very, very well. It's like the marriage supper of the lamb every meal. It's, it's incredible. So, yeah, I, I get paid a stipend to teach, but I, I cannot make a living on it. We are supported like missionaries. Um, so I just... because. That, that question usually comes up, so I'll just throw that out there. So, Acts chapter 17. Um, th- this is a fascinating passage, um, and, and, and for a lot of reasons, um, people like me with, with degrees in philosophy and literature love this kind of stuff because we understand some of the background, and I, I'm going to teach that to you, but um, we find in Acts 17 and in the second half a, a, an interesting way of looking at evangelism, an interesting way of looking at ministry, because the Apostle Paul here in this passage understands and and demonstrates the difference between necessary and sufficient causes. Uh, That sounds like a thing a philosophy prop would say, doesn't it? It's not that hard, okay? Here's pro tip, most things in philosophy are not that hard. If you could say, time out, could you explain it to me like I'm in eighth grade? and you get somebody who can actually teach you, it's not that hard. Some philosophers try to write to be confusing on purpose. They're jerks. We won't deal with them. Most of it is not really that hard. So let's talk about this difference between necessary and sufficient. You already know this. You just don't know what it's called, right? So when I first started driving, um, and my first car was a classic. It was a 1984 Plymouth Horizon. Thank you. Four-speed. Four-speed, AM radio, and, and like that car, the steering wheel was way too big proportionately for the car. You get your head stuck in it. Um, the Dodge Omni was also its, its sister car, and it was metallic brown. It was a sweet ride. And I beat the living daylights out of that car. So I got that car, and my dad taught me how to drive, taught me how to drive stick. Um, the car I drive now is a stick. I just like rowing through the gears, probably be the last manual transmission I ever owned but it is a millennial anti-theft device, so nobody will steal my car. Um, sorry, millennials in the room, and Gen Z is like, a what? Row through the what? Anyway, so my dad's trying to teach me about cars and basic engineering and mechanics, not just driving. He said, Andy, there's going to come a day you're going to come out to your car, um, and this is, you know, in the ancient times, we had to actually stick a key in the ignition on the steering column and turn it ancient history, I know. He said, there's going to come a time you're going to do that to start your car, and it's not going to start. So you need to know there's one of three reasons, probably, that's not going to happen, or a combination of three, but there's got to be one of three things, because an internal combustion engine needs at least minimally, um, essentially, three things. Fuel. What else? An ignition source, and 
air, oxygen. Just like those of you with camping background, you need all three for a campfire. Or, you know, if you're from South Jersey, I guess a gasoline match and running room would be, would be the three necessary elements. But I, I need all three for that internal combustion engine to operate, do I not? They're all necessary. Are any of them sufficient? No. See? You know the difference. I have several necessary bodily functions working in relative concert this morning. I mean, I am in my 50s. In a relative concert that allows me to stand before you and speak. Not one of my independent body systems by itself is necessary or sufficient for me to stand in front of you and talk, right? And if, say, my endocrine system decides to go on vacation right now, I will fall over, right? So it's not sufficient for me to speak to you, but it is necessary. So um, the second half of Acts 17 is really a, a preacher's dream because there's three easy points to make. Um, as Paul uh, works through the sufficient means for uh, 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 engaging with the gospel through three necessary ideas. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to spend the majority of my time on the first third. Because there are words in there that many times we in 21st century uh, North American Christianity skip. We've been conditioned to do that. Um, and I blame no one in particular, but many times in 21st century Christianity, if we see phrases or words, terms in our Bible that aren't readily accessible to us, we just skip them because we've been conditioned to just think, when I read the Bible, I need to know what I must be able to do. And that is the gospel according to Aristotle. You'll have to invite me back for an explanation of what that means. Um, hint, hint, wink, wink. But I'd be happy to do that. Um, or uh, just another way of saying it, it's a radically pragmatic view of how we do things. But, and that's what we do in church. And I'm not saying your church. I'm saying most evangelical Christians, in the United States at least, w the primary question we ask is, how does it work or what does it do to make it work? How does it work? It's a very Aristotelian question. There's nothing wrong with that, but there might be an imbalance. And so when we come to words where we don't know, we say, well, this is 2,000 years old. Um, you know, th this word has nothing to do with me in the 21st century. Oh, but it does. So I I'm going to carefully explain it to you. Uh, remember, I'm, I'm used to teaching knucklehead 18-year-olds, so this, this is a piece of cake. Um, so I'm going to teach it to you, and we're going to walk through three simple steps. I believe you have them in your outline, in your bulletin, if you want to follow along. But here's what Luke writes in Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with all those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean, uh-oh, old word, we don't need that. Yes, you do. Just hang on to it. A group of Epicurean and Stoic. What's that? Hang on to that one as well. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, um, you've heard the term um, exegesis or exegetical questions before, right? So to exegete or one who is an exegete is one who actually digs out. Think excavate. The words are related. So as you 
hear or read those first few verses, if there's things you don't know and you ask questions of the text, do you know what kinds of questions those are? Exegetical questions. Like, what in the world is an Epicurean? What in the world is a Stoic? What is their problem? Why do they think Paul is babbling? And why are they accusing him of advocating foreign gods? What does that mean? These are all exegetical questions, and you can find the answers to these. Now, maybe not directly from this text, but there are helps, and I'm going to help you think through these things. So the first thing that we have here is the idea of understanding. So Paul, first of all, we're going to see that Paul understands his world. This is a necessary element in in um, effective gospel witness. If you just don't understand your world, um, you cannot any longer get away with stepping into a group of people and say, hey, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and expect somebody to look at you and say, my, my, yes, but please tell me more. Now, does Jesus love people? Of course he does. Does he have a plan for all of it? Yes, but you're not speaking the same language as someone in the 21st century by just saying that. Does that make sense to you? Okay, so let's look at the different ways Paul has understanding. Now, again, I I told you we're going to be spending the majority of our time here, and I want to walk through these things together. So first of all, Paul knows at the core, every person on the planet is religious. Everybody on the planet is religious. I could take that a step further, and this might make you uncomfortable, and I'm okay with that, but don't heat the tar and pluck the chickens just yet. Just give me a chance. But if if I were to say to you, not only is everybody on the planet religious, how about this? Every person on the planet is a believer. Now, can we use the words believer and Christian synonymously? Yes. But they're not necessarily the same thing, are they? If you are a Christian, you certainly are a believer, right? But you don't have to be a Christian to merely be a believer. What I mean is, everybody believes something. Even someone who says, boldly, I do not believe in God, that is still a statement of belief. It's just negatively stated. Does that make sense? Every person on the planet is a believer. So if if we're still friends, let me push the envelope just a little bit more, take it one more step. There There will come a day where the cells and stalls of hell will be populated with Believers, that ought to frighten you somewhat. So Paul understands this. Um, he understands at the core that everyone is, is religious, um, and we get some clues about that right here in these first few verses. He's distressed to see that the city is full of idols. Now, do you think Athens is the first place Paul has been in the ancient Near East where he's seen idolatry? No, it's everywhere. So what does he know uh, why is he distressed about this idolatry? Well, I, I want to, to point out um, some, some things to you here. Um, notice the language Luke does not use. He does not use the Greek equivalent of Paul was royally ticked because the Athenians worshipped all kinds of idols. Th- that's not what the word distressed means. It, this isn't cleaned up. This isn't some um, translator's way of making it making us feel better about Paul's deep anger. No, distressed means distressed. Um, and I'm going to explain Athens to you 
in, in my third subpoint here, but, but let me just tell you what this word means. It is the same word that's used of Jesus by Matthew when Matthew says Jesus, as he is traveling through the towns and villages, speaking the good news of the kingdom of God, was greatly distressed to see people who are lost and leaderless and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Um, the, the best nuanced way I can explain this word to you goes back to my own pastoral days. Pastor Tim and I were talking about this a little bit this morning. I, I pastored in Scranton. I, I don't know if you know this, but the, the city motto of Scranton is, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Uh, that is the, the city motto. Um, it, is, it really sometimes feels like the valley of the shadow of death. I was a pastor for uh, years, um, and uh, I left the full-time pastor at, four, at age 42 to do what I'm doing now, full-time. So by age 42, I had, um, I had officiated my share of weddings and funerals. I did way more funerals than I did weddings. Way more. And of the funerals that I oversaw, that I preached for, most of them were for people quite a bit younger than me. I left the pastorate at 42. Suicides, overdoses, murder victims, too, from our church. One still unsolved. It, it'll, it'll never be solved. Um, diseases that 34-year-olds didn't need to be contracting, like cirrhosis of the liver from drinking alcohol at 34. So my phone... It would, would not be uncommon for my phone to ring in the middle of the night and with modern technology. You know who's calling you. You don't have to actually answer the phone to find out now, but marvelously. Therefore, we let calls go. So, I, you know, my phone would ring at 2 o'clock in the morning. I could see who's calling me, and my heart would just drop. Distressed. That's what that word means. Any of you who have walked with any other human being for any amount of time, you know what that word means. Does it mean that you want to punch a pagan in the face? It doesn't mean you want to run and hide from all the things that you disagree with. But when you see it and you understand it, you feel compassion. So, why was Paul distressed? Well, because Paul understood the thought language of his world. I don't know if you know this. This is a bit of a, a trivia fact. So if you're ever on Jeopardy and this comes up and you win big time, checks may be payable to Addison's Walk. Just remember where you heard this from. Uh, Paul was classically trained. Paul was a highly educated man. There were three basic university towns, if you will, in the ancient Near East. Paul's hometown of Tarsus. Alexandria, Egypt. And Athens. If you're wondering, well, was Rome um, a university town? Not quite yet. It's on the way. Rome is kind of like the Johns Hopkins of Ivy League schools. It gets added much later than all the other ones. Okay? So it's, it's coming, but not, not quite yet. And Paul's classically trained. And he's prepared to have the conversation that he's about to have. So it tells us that he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as the marketplace day by day. So by deduction, friends, what is the one place he does not go to and have a conversation in? So he's in a synagogue, which is like a mobile temple, 
He's in the marketplace. Where is he not? Can you figure it out? A church. Luke would tell us if he went to First Baptist Church of Athens. It doesn't exist. So he goes to the synagogue because um, the, the Jewish people had been dispersed. This, this happened centuries before, so they're all over the place. So Judaism is all over the ancient world, um, in both the West, in Greece, and in Asia. Um, and, and he goes there as his custom because he is Jewish, and he can do that. But then he goes to the marketplace. Well, what is the marketplace, and why would he go there? Well, the marketplace, the Greek word is the agora, is the ancient equivalent to our modern-day Walmart. And I don't care how bougie you think you are, at some point in your life, everybody has to go to Walmart. Am I right? And let's just think about that. If you're like, ew, I'm more of a Target person. Okay, fine. Be that way. But you are missing out, right? Because let's talk about the glories of Walmart. How many places on the planet right now, today, can you go and buy a battery for your car a new shirt, um, or maybe even get your tires changed while you're waiting, you go to Subway, all under the same roof. That's a good day, friends. So in Paul's day, it's the same idea. Uh, Of course, you know, he's going to buy a new toga and purchasing a camel blanket, and he's not going to Subway. He's going to Gyro Way, probably. Now, please don't lecture me on how to pronounce the word Gyro. I don't want to have that conversation. I've studied Greek. It makes no sense. So if you're saying, oh, it's pronounced Euro, then spell it that way. It's just, I'm sorry. This is, this is one of the questions I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. Like, what's the deal with this word? So he understands this place. Um, and it's interesting that he goes there, and, and we're going to come, and I'm going to explain Epicureans and Stokes to you momentarily. But it's interesting that these two groups of people say, what is this babbler trying to say? And it seems to be that he's advocating foreign gods. So... Paul is engaged with anybody he can find in the marketplace having conversations with them. And it says that he is preaching the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. This is going to become important later. But it is interesting for us to think about this phrase, um, he's advocating foreign gods. This is not the first time this has been said in the marketplace in Athens. In 399 B.C., so roughly 450 years-ish before the event you're reading about today, in a time that is ancient for Athens, a short, balding, pugnacious man was executed by the Athenian democracy um, on state charges. His name was Socrates. In 399 B.C., the Greek philosopher Socrates was sentenced to death and executed in 399 B.C. The charge against him was advocating foreign gods and he was corrupting the youth. I intend to corrupt the youth. I'm not kidding. In the name of Jesus, I intend to corrupt the youth. So Socrates was accused of advocating foreign gods. Exact same phrase, that was the charge levied against him. And there's a bunch of intrigue and all kinds of stuff going on. I don't have time to explain all that to you. It's the exact same language used here. And and I just want to share something fascinating with you that Paul would have known. How did Socrates get accused of advocating foreign gods? Well, Athens, which is a a fascinating way to think about um, Athens and that somebody actually get in trouble with that because Athens is a liberal 
Western free democracy 450 years ago. It's part of the Roman Empire now in Luke 17, uh, uh, Luke 17, Acts 17, sorry. Um, but back then, 450 years, it, it, was still, it was still a democracy. And just think about it. Who gets executed for asking questions in a democracy? It's not North Korea. It's insane when you think about it. So what question, and talk about foreign gods, there are gods everywhere. Um, is there a church street in Phillipsburg? There is? Okay, so what would you find on church street? Yeah, lots of churches, right? Oh, another fun fact, I almost took a position at a church in Bethlehem a number of years ago. Um, Bethlehem has a church street. You know what's on church street? Churches. You know what Athens does not have? A church street, ever, uh, in its history, for two reasons. One, there was no such thing as a church in, in 399 B.C., and two, um, it doesn't matter because the entire city was a monument to uh, Athena, their patron goddess, and there were temples and places of worship everywhere. And it, it, so religion was part of everyday life, it was part of civic life. So Socrates... Um, pretty smart dude, and he looked around him and he said, you know, I I have a fundamental question. So we've talked about essential things, we've talked about necessary things and sufficient things. A fundamental question, kind of like the the periodic table of elements, you can't get more elemental than an element, right? You can't get more fundamental than a fundamental question. So he asked a fundamental question, and it was this, Socrates, what holds it all together? Why do the seasons change with regularity? Why can we make simple observations of the changing uh, and movement of celestial bodies in the night sky? Why do things fall down every time when you drop them? Never sideways, never up, never at an angle, down. Why do leaves fall off trees and, and it seems like orderly they come back? Something has to be holding it all together. And Socrates said, now, in our world, we Greeks for generations have said it is the gods, plural. You know what Socrates said about that? I've read our literature. That's impossible. You can do this too. Remember I told you all this is accessible and easy to you? Easy for you? You can do this. If you read one chapter out of Homer's Iliad, which would have been ancient even by um, Socrates' day, you read one chapter out of Homer's Iliad, you will come to the same conclusion as Socrates. And that is this. His conclusion was it cannot be the gods that hold it all together because they do not get along, they change their minds, and they haven't told us what they want. Here's the Giesemann 8th grade translation of that. Uh, the, The gods of Mount Olympus are all jerks. All of them. Uh, You may have a favorite, those of you who are nerds in the room, but be careful because none of them are actually good. Um, I I don't know if this illustration will go anywhere with you, but I'm going to give it a shot. Um, So like Marvel's Avengers, it's just a retelling of the Greek gods. Now DC Comics is a little easier to figure out. Like Wonder Woman's Athena, Aquaman's clearly Poseidon. I'm pretty sure Batman is Hades, but... I can have a debate with you about that, if you would, if you so desire. Just think about it. Um, 
but but in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you basically have a retelling of how the gods became gods. I mean, even think about it. The, the great enemy of the Avengers is Thanos. Where is he from? What's his home planet? Titan. Who did the gods have to fight for supremacy in the ancient Greek world? The Titans. Just saying. So, but, but even, in, even in the Disney world, um, they, they throw in a little sauce to make it interesting. And so part of one of the Avengers is the Norse god Thor. You, if you've seen or are interested in any of this, um, the Thor movie, you would never want to go see a movie that's actually about the Norse god Thor. He is a complete jerk, as is his father Odin and everybody else. He's not Chris Hemsworth with a nice haircut, looking all buff, being funny. But Disney, um, even in their Thor movie, they smuggled in the gospel. They didn't mean to. Because nobody would ever want to go see a Thor movie, but they have this God who sent to earth to learn humility. And when he finally learns humility, what does he do? Saves humanity. Huh. Interesting. I got news for you. None of the gods are interested in humility. They made that up, totally. Anyway, back to the Greeks. So Socrates said, it cannot be our gods because they do not get along. They change their minds and they haven't told us what they want. All true. So Socrates said, I think it has to be one God. Now, again, you might be thinking, well, why is that radical? Because in an Athenian democracy, the last king was deposed generations before. Every man gets to speak for himself. It is truly a democracy, which is a very dangerous thing, not a good form of government. Um, And everybody gets to speak for themselves. There is really no one in charge. And suddenly Socrates says, yeah, but... There's something over and above us all that we stand under, or literally we must understand. It has authority over all of us. And do you know what he called it? The Logos. Yeah. And for those of you who, you know, know a little bit of Greek or have heard words before, if you're wondering, no, Andy, that cannot be the same word that John uses in the first chapter of that gospel. Oh, yes, it is. 400 years later, written to a Greek audience, in the beginning was the word, logos, the unifying principle, the thing that holds it all together. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then John goes on to say, and the word became flesh. Socrates never would have come up with that. So this has been spoken here before. And then we learn about these two groups um, that have a problem with Paul um, in his message. And you might just think, well, these are just anti-Christians. They don't know what Christianity is. But there's a primary reason why both Epicureans and Stoics are struggling. I'm going to explain it to you. So Epicureanism um, is founded by a guy named Epicurus. Isn't that convenient? I I love it when that happens, right? I don't know why we just can't do that all the time. But it's founded by a guy named Epicurus, and Epicurus died uh, 300 years before the time of Christ. So this is relatively ancient by Paul's day. Um, the Epicureans, if when you think about ancient Greeks or Romans, and you kind of have that popular view in your mind of like the, the, the just all-time party animal, toga, 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 well, that's, this is the guy. Right? This is kind of where it came from. Now, by Paul's day, that's what the Epicureans had become. Epicurus 
that he didn't want that. That wasn't his thing. But these were the guys who said that, um, that a good life is a life free of pain. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? Some of you in this room, probably when you were conscious this morning and you prayed, you asked God, God, please give me some time today that is pain-free. Is that okay? Yeah, I get it. But for them, the good is pleasure. So if they got t-shirts made, um, they would see, say things like, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, or YOLO, or if it feels good, do it, like all this stuff. Um, that's what they'd say. So pleasure is the ultimate good. Pain is the ultimate evil. Um, they were called atomists. The word atom is a Greek word that, of course, means very small particle. So the Epicureans believe that all things, including you, and if they talked about the gods, you have to put bigger air quotes around it, all things are made of material substance, particles, everything. So when you die, that's it. You have nothing, you have no senses, you don't sense anything at death, so you don't fear death. So you get all the pleasure you can now. Now, um, why I, t- I said that Epicureanism is important today. Why? Well, because Epicurus developed one of the logical arguments against the existence of God that I bet you've heard of. Um, it's called, technically, the logical problem of evil. If you've never heard of that before, I bet you've heard it this way. If God is so good, why do bad things happen to Oh, you've heard this. That's this guy, Epicurus. It's brilliant, and it's logically sound. Now, logically sound does not make it true, okay? We'll have to have a discussion about logic later. But just because something is logically sound does not make it actually true, but it it does follow the laws of logic. And basically saying, if there is unnecessary suffering, then God either doesn't know, can't stop it, or doesn't care. So he's calling into question his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnibenevolence. If you kick out any of the three legs on a three-legged stool, what's going to happen to the stool? Falls. It's brilliant. This has been in use for over 2,300 years. If you were, were to go online and watch a debate between an atheist and a theist, I guarantee the atheist is going to bring this up and use it well. There is an answer to it, but again, you'll have to have me come back and we can talk about it. Um, so, what's the biggest problem Epicurean, Epicureanism has with Christianity? It, it's not because Christianity doesn't want to have fun, or does Christianity have no place for pleasure? Of course not. That's, that's silly, right? We're not puritanical weirdos, okay? We, we understand a, a, a biblical view of pleasure. The reason why the Epicurean philosophers had such a problem with Paul is because they have no concept of a resurrection. That's the problem. Are you following? Okay. And if you would like an example, um, I offer you Exhibit A, Miley Cyrus. Um, This is among the more appropriate pictures of her I could show you uh, for a a modern example of Epicureans. Um, I have many Epicureans in my classroom. Um, They are very polite, very respectful kids in my classroom. On the weekends, they turn into some kind of combination of drunken Viking and Tasmanian devil. Oh, they're there. They live for pleasure. Stoics. Now, Stoicism is not founded by a guy named Stoa. That would be much too easy. Um, It's founded by a guy named Zeno. Um, It's it's as ancient as Epicureanism, um, but Stoicism tends to be a little more comfortable with Christianity because 
um, it seems to be the thing of being under control. And, and does Scripture speak about having self-control? Of course it does. So there is some overlap here, just like there is some overlap with uh, the Epicureans. So basically, um, they wanted a life that maximized virtue. Um, and the, the thing is that the Stoics believe that the things you can control, you control. And if you're doing that, you are doing good. The things you can't control, like if you get some disease um, and it's going to take your life, you can't control that. That's not up to you to decide. It's not up to you if your hair falls out or not. I mean, believe me, I would have made that decision a long time ago. Okay, I, I, would, have, I would have thought that through. Um, but I have no control over that. Therefore, I don't worry about it. I'd be a good Stoic because I don't concern myself with it. So the Stoics believed in God. Again, you have to air quote it, but their God was reason itself, a nebulous idea. And for the Stoics, good was getting as close to reason as you can so that you can see life pass beneath you. So when someone uses the phrase, oh, I saw such and such happening at the water cooler at work, I want no part of that drama, it is beneath me. That is directly from the Stoic songbook. It is. It's amazing how these phrases have survived to the 21st century because it's nothing you can control. You let it go. Stoics also had no concept of a resurrection. None. This is why they are confused at first to hear what Paul is saying about about, uh, the resurrection. If you want a modern example of a Stoic, I offer you Exhibit B. Now, If I were J.J. Abrams, I could have Master Yoda and Mr. Spock on the same screen, but um, I don't think I want to do that because the universe would unravel. Those of you who are sci-fi nerds, you're welcome for that whole reference. So so we have examples. So then, Paul, now we're going to really start moving through this. You're wondering, you're never going to finish it. I know. It'll be a Christmas miracle. But this is going to go fast. So Paul first has understanding. I told you I was going to spend my time on that. And if you have more questions about Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Stoics, Epicureans, how it all fits, the Logos, you ask me in the time afterward, and we will have a great conversation. But then he has opportunity. Verse 19, then they took and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Basically, the Areopagus is kind of like the faculty lounge at the University of Athens. Right? where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That doesn't sound like any culture you've ever heard of before, does it? I didn't think so. Paul then stood up. And by the way, if you ever want to do an interesting um, read-through Acts, Luke uses that phrase over and over and over again. And he stood up, and -and so-and-so got to his feet over and over again. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Oh, see, I wasn't making that up. I see in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully... At your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Sir, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he takes the opportunity. I love this, right? This is, this is so inspirational for me. I get opportunities to speak in other universities sometimes. I have a list of schools I've spoken to. When I go to other universities, and I'm not talking like Bible college, I mean secular universities, I go to the bookstore, 
and I go look at their objects of worship, and I browse the stacks. I have enough t-shirts and all that stuff. I don't need any more of it. Well, I would always take more, but I don't need any more. But I'll ask the attendant, can I go look at the textbooks? And they're like, what is wrong with you? And all I got to say is, I'm a philosophy prof. Oh, okay, nerd, go ahead. So I go look at some sections. I look at philosophy, religion, history, and literature. Sometimes I find the same book in all four sections. It tells me what they're interested in. And then I go to whatever their student union is, and I study carefully the advertisements on the posters. You would be offended by much of what you saw. Let's just say a misappropriation of unicorns and rainbows. And many other symbols. And I look carefully. Because I want to go? No, because I want to understand So Paul stands up and he says, men of Athens, I see in every way you're very religious. In fact, as I look carefully at your objects of worship, I took a tour. I even found one with an inscription called, to the unknown God. Now, you notice Paul doesn't say, I I worship the way I worship, you worship the way you worship, it's cool. We're all just kind of doing the same thing, right? No. In fact, it sounds a little unkind when he says, You've been worshiping in ignorance. Well, I have some exciting news for you. Niceness is not a Christian virtue. It would be absolutely unkind for Paul to step into that environment and step back out, allowing them to walk away thinking, we're all good. If you go, again, back to Matthew and you read Jesus' first sermon, you know what the first thing out of his mouth is? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So he takes the opportunity, and then um, we're really going to go through this very, very quickly. He speaks with authority, and I'm going to give you kind of the Cliff's Notes version of this. So in verse 24 through the end of the chapter, what you have is a master class in using what is called either natural philosophy or you would know it better as general revelation. Now, when I was in Bible college, I learned the difference between general revelation and special revelation. And general revelation was kind of talked about positively, but I had a few professors that really at least allowed me to believe, if not, did not lead me to believe, that general revelation is basically useless because no one can get saved through general revelation. Well, general revelation alone that's true. But general revelation can lead to something. So Paul has, has the opportunity and he says, okay, let's begin with me giving you the difference between the God of the universe and your gods. He said, guys, your gods need you to build for them sheds, barns, and houses. You, you actually have to bring them food that they never eat. They need you to serve them. It's interesting because in one of the Socratic dialogues, a a guy named um, Euthyphro talking to Socrates is trying to explain to him what he believes justice is. And one of the things that he says is, well, justice is ministering to the gods. And Socrates says, "Like, like, the gods need us to serve them? And the guy's like, yeah, the gods need us to serve them. And by doing so, this is actually justice. You know what Socrates said? If the gods need us to do anything for them, they are not Yeah, the pagan figured that out. Paul says the same thing. 
My God does not need me. Your gods don't even like you. Let alone, they need you. And this is true of all ancient um, polytheistic cultures across the board. They're all the same. They created man so that someone would make them sandwiches. Geesman translation. Every time. And they made them flawed so that they would die off regularly because they knew they were going to hate them. Read the biblical account of creation. It is not like that. And so he says, look, this God that I serve is the creator of all these things. It's the creator of the things you make your gods out of, and he is not far from us. So if you seek him, you will find him. And he says, and, and how do I know this is true? He, he ends his speech by going to special revelation and saying, because God raised his son from the dead. And we are told at the end of that chapter, two people by name gave their lives to Jesus. A man named Dionysius that Christian tradition tells us became the first pastor of Athens, and a woman named Damaris. Now, let me just, I'm going to tell you something we don't need to talk about after the service. Right? I'm going I'm to head it off right now. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Um, it, it has been said that Paul blew it in Athens, and he admits as much in 1 Corinthians 1. I'm sorry, that is absolutely untrue. That is absolutely untrue. And I'd like to know where in Christianity you consider, it's considered blowing it when you go into a pre-Christian society and after a couple days of ministry, two people by name, and Luke says others were as well, we just have a list of two, it's not exhaustive, give their lives to Jesus. That sounds like a win to me. So he steps in and he speaks with authority. Moving from general revelation to special revelation, it's actually a master's class there in, in chapter 24, uh, in, in Acts 17 in the last few verses. So what would I like you to, to think about today? Well, first of all, um, if we just kind of think through um, the points today, work hard at understanding your world. I don't live here. I mean, I'm trying to figure out Phillipsburg as I'm, as I'm, you know, driving through. Is it all that much different than Easton or Bethlehem or Allentown? I'm, I'm sure there are differences. I know there's a world of difference if, across river between the Lehigh Valley and just an hour north of Wyoming Valley. Right? I, I know that. Um, I mean, I, I, try to understand, I, I try to understand my world, but I don't live here. You do. You have Epicureans. You have Stoics. Y you have... Um, pagans, you have Wiccans, you have Muslims, you have all kinds of people here. Have you ever stopped to think about, okay, I, I know you care about people, of course you do. I mean, that's a given, but to say, all right, I'm going to work hard at not under, just understanding what they think, but why th they think the way they do. That is knowing thought language. If you have missionaries that you support that are really getting it done on the field, it's because they know how to do that. Yes, they eat the food no matter what it is. They understand the currency, you know, shrunken heads and all, whatever, right? The missions conference. But they really understand how people think. Two, if, if you're saying, man, I really want to do that, well, are, are you asking God for opportunities? I mean, it's, it's that simple. God, help me to be mindful of the opportunities around me. 
Okay? And three, when you have that opportunity, speak with authority. You're not standing atop a table beating Jesus into somebody with a 40-pound reference Bible. That's, that, of course, is not what I mean. But if we could talk more, I, I would explain to you how you never have to walk away from a, a conversation saying something like, well, what's true for you is obviously not true for me. Because that's actually an untrue statement. Truth is truth. You may not believe the same thing, and that's actually, that's, that is okay. But beliefs have consequences. Do they not? I'd love to talk with you more. Thank you so much for opportunity to share with, with you today. I'm going to turn it back over to Pastor Tim.